This sermon is brought to you by Christ Church South Philadelphia, a church that is committed to living out the gospel in their neighborhood and from there impacting the world. For more information about our church or to support our mission, you can go to www.ChristChurchSouthPhilly.org. Well, good morning. Good to see everybody. Uh, if I haven't had the privilege of meeting you yet, my name is Jeff, and I'm the lead pastor here at Christ Church, which is my great joy and privilege to do. If you can have your Bible with you, please open it to the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke, we're going to be in the 20th chapter. If you're newer to the Bible, it can be far, hard sometimes to navigate around, and so you can find the Gospel of Luke by looking at the table of contents in the front, and you'll see that the Gospel of Luke is one of the four biographies written about Jesus. And so you just want to go into the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and we're in chapter 20 this morning. We've been calling this series that we've been in for well over a year, and by God's grace, I do think we're going to finish it this year. Uh, we've been calling this series, Jesus Unfiltered, because that's really what the Gospel of Luke gives us. He says that he compiled this account based upon eyewitnesses, people who lived with Jesus, who heard what Jesus actually said, who saw what Jesus actually did. And so we've been calling this series Jesus Unfiltered because we want to look at Jesus Christ, kind of stripped away from all that time and tradition has added over the ages. We want to see him as he truly is from those who were really there. Because Jesus said to know him is to know life. And so there's nothing more than we need than to know Jesus in deeper and deeper ways. Whether you're a Christian for decades, or whether you're here and you're just curious, you would not yet identify as a Christian, you, you wouldn't identify as a Christian, the thing that we all need, wherever we're at, is we need to know Jesus in increasing ways. So let's look at Luke chapter 20 together. I'm going to read verses 1 through 19. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us, by what authority do you do these things? Or who is it that gave you this authority? He answered them, I will also, also ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he'll say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death. They are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they could give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant. But they also beat him and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him, so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard 
to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls in that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. Praise God for his word. May he be with us now through the preaching of his word. God, have your way in our lives. We see in this text that Jesus is being questioned about his authority. These leaders want to know who or what gives you the right to do and say all these things that you're doing and saying. And we know as they're asking this question, this is not a genuine question. They don't really want to know the answer. We know from chapter 19, verse 47, and then also verse 19, that really they're rebelling against his authority. They don't want to be under his authority. They want to kill him. As I think about that, I think, man, these guys, they would have fit right into our American culture. Is there anything that's more American than rebelling against authority? Like, this is kind of what birthed our country, isn't it? England, we're not going to have taxation without representation. We're going to take your tea and throw it into the Boston Harbor. You know, we, we have an American Revolution. And then since then, I mean, you see it's just in looking at music. I mean, every song kind of has their, every generation kind of has their, their anthem of rebellion, doesn't it? You know, and so for me, I grew up in, you know, I listened, not commending them as a band, but uh, I, I used to listen to Limp Biscuit, right? And so, you know, one of their big songs was, it's my way, my way or the highway, you know, it's all about the east, I should stop. Um, you know, uh, nowadays, I mean, I was looking up and some of the most past popular songs, definitely wouldn't recommend this song, but there's a song apparently by, I don't know, Megan D. Stallion or something about Savage and just how I'm going to live life my own way and do my own thing, be my own kind of person. And if you start, like, judging these generations, like, time out for a second. You know, who's the John Bon Jovi, you know, generation here? It's my life, you know, now or never. I'm going to live, you know, I'm going to do what I want. And before you start judging them, I can go back to Frank Sinatra. I did it my way. You know, we all have these anthems of rebellion. We love rebellion as Americans. You know, the whole world plays football. We're going to play football, but we're calling it soccer. Take that. And guess what? We're going to come up with our own game of football. What do you want now? You know, I mean, and in South Philly, in South Philly, we really love a brilliant, don't we? You know, hey, I'm going to stick it to the man. So guess what? If I want to dress up like a woman and rave an umbrella on New Year's Day, I'm going to do it loud and proud. I'm a mummer, you know. We love, we love rebellion. And, and if you think about it, actually, it can be good and important sometimes to rebel. Without rebellion, Galileo doesn't make his telescope. Without rebellion, Copernicus doesn't discover that the earth rotates around the sun. Without rebellion, we don't have the Protestant Reformation, which gave us access to the Bible. Without rebellion, we don't have the civil rights movement, which gave civil and equal rights under the law to people of all races. Rebelling against authority is actually sometimes really important for making progress. But it can also lead to chaos. We saw that earlier this month, didn't we? As the authority of our Senate and our state electors and our court systems were not honored by those who conducted that horrific attack on Capitol Hill. And so while some authority should be 
kicked back against, it's very important that other authority be respected or else our society descends into chaos. And so the question really is, how do you determine which authority is the right authority? How do you determine which authority is the right authority? And that's exactly what Jesus gets into today. Jesus has arrived in Jerusalem. He's been on a long journey there, and now he has finally come to this city. And when he came, he came in with a bang. He came in, as we saw last week, riding on a donkey, which was an intentional fulfillment of the prophecy given to the prophet Zechariah, who said that God's anointed servant, God's Messiah, God's promised king, would come to Jerusalem riding on a donkey. And so Jesus shows up, and people start singing his praise, a quoting from Psalm 118, blesses the king who comes in the name of the Lord, and Jesus accepts that because he is declaring very clearly he is the king who's come in the name of the Lord. And, and then he goes, from there, he goes into the temple, the central place of the Jewish spiritual life, the locus of their worship, and he's, he, is, he is furious. See, the temple had been perverted by merchants who were charging exorbitant prices for animals to be sacrificed. They had taken the holy temple of God and had turned it into a tourist trap. And so Jesus shows up and he, he wrecks house. I mean, he drives them out, exerting his authority over the temple. And then he sets up shop there and he now, as we see in the beginning of verse 20, he is starting to teach. And if you've been with us in our series in Luke, you know that whenever Jesus taught, what's been repeated again and again, he taught as one who had what? Authority. He, he didn't give like, you know, good suggestions. And, hey, here's a little food for thought. No, he said, this is the truth and you must follow it. He taught with authority. And so these leaders are coming together and they're saying, what is giving you the authority to do all these things. And we need to understand, these are the major power brokers in the Jewish government that are confronting Jesus. You have the chief priests, so not just the regular priests, these are the chief priests who are in charge of all the other priests. You have the elders who are the head of each Jewish clan, and then you have the scribes who were the religious lawyers. They, they were the experts in the sacred writings. This is the executive, the legislative, and the judicial branch all coming together to exert their influence against Jesus and to question his authority. See, what Jesus was doing was not innocuous. Jesus was upending the entire Jewish system of religion. He is asserting his authority over their lives. And so they want to know what gives you the right. And there's three things that I think Jesus says in response to this question of what gives him the right. I think he talks about how authority is a lot more important than we think. He talks about how authority is a lot more freeing than we think. And he talks about how he is a lot more trustworthy than we think. Authority is a lot more important than we think. Authority is a lot more freeing than we think. And Jesus is a lot more trustworthy than we think. Let's get into this together. Authority is a lot more important than we think. Jesus answers their question of his authority by asking a question of his own. And he's not doing this to try to evade what they're saying. He's doing this to expose what's really going on in their hearts. He asks them the question in verse 3. He says, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Now John was the last prophet who immediately preceded Jesus. And John said that he came to announce the coming of the Messiah, God's anointed king. And he called people to repent, to turn from their sins 
to come and believe in God again because they'd gone astray. And when people did that, he would then baptize them as a public witness to their commitment to follow God. And so Jesus is telling these guys, hey, you're asking about my authority. Well, who do you think John is? Where do you think John's authority came from? Because what they believed about John would show what they actually believed about Jesus. But this question exposes the leaders' hearts. Because we see in verses 5 and 7, they aren't actually interested in hearing Jesus' answer to the question of authority. No, no, was verse 5 and 7 tell us? It says that they are thinking among themselves about, about how to answer. Like, we deny that John is from God, people are going to get upset at us. But if we say that John is from God, Jesus is going to condemn us. And so notice as they're thinking about this question, never for once does it enter their minds, huh, I wonder where John's authority actually did come from. They're not actually honestly considering the question. They aren't concerned with what is actually true. They're just concerned with what's most beneficial for themselves. And so they're asking Jesus about his authority, but but who is their authority? They are their own authority. They aren't interested in considering whether Jesus is God. They've already determined that he isn't on their own authority. And so they aren't really searching for the truth Because guess what? When you're your own authority, there's no such thing as truth. When you're your own authority, truth becomes relative to yourself. Truth is just whatever you decide it to be. And that's why Jesus doesn't answer them. How how could he? No matter what he said, these guys did not have any way to grapple with truth within their worldview because they had already become an authority unto themselves. Friends, These leaders, they'd be very much at home in our culture today, wouldn't they? In 2016, the Oxford English Dictionary's word of the year was post-truth. This is what post-truth is defined as. It says, relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion that appeals to emotion and personal belief. Post-truth. There's no objective truth. Truth is just as you see it, based upon your emotions and your personal beliefs. But friends, have we thought through the implications of this kind of worldview? I want to share an example that I understand might be triggering in some ways, but I think it's important to share because we need to understand the stakes of what happens when we lose a sense of objective truth. Several years ago, when everything was breaking about Harry Weinstein, and woman after woman started to come forward and speak about how he had abused them, Oprah Winfrey said this in her famous 2018 Golden Globe speech. She said, what I know for sure is that speaking your truth is the most powerful tool we have. Now, now the truth of the kind of this kind of assault is is painfully personal. So it is in a very important sense, it is personal, it, it is your truth. But ultimately, what made these women's stories so powerful was because it wasn't just their truth. It was because it was 
the truth. If it was only their truth but not the truth, that means they would have been lying. And that's what abusers will claim, isn't it? What they'll say is, oh, you're just making this up. This didn't happen this way. You're just, you're twisting this in your own mind. And if you're a powerful enough person like Harry Weinstein, you can get away with that for decades. What took him down was because it wasn't just their truth, but it was that as these brave women shared their story, it was established that their truth was the truth and justice was able to be served. Now, I know that the courts can tragically get things wrong sometimes. That can lead to tremendous suffering. So my point is not to say let's, let's just all honor the courts of authority of the courts all the time. My point is to say that it's vitally important that we need to believe in objective truth. We need to believe that there is truth that exists just outside of our own personal perceptions. Because if truth is relative to me, that means there's no objective truth. And friends, how do you have any kind of justice under that worldview? And so we can't live like these leaders. We can't be an authority unto ourselves. If we want to have justice, then we need to believe in objective truth. We need to believe in things that exist outside of myself, which means that there must be an authority that comes from outside of myself. We love to rebel against authority. We actually, we actually need authority. We want to experience things as fundamental as to our wellness of being as, as being able to have justice, then we need to have an authority that's not just relative to me. But again, we ask the question, so what's the right authority? Well, before answering that, let's look at point number two. Authority is more freeing than we think. It's more, it's more important than we think. It's also more freeing than we think. Jesus goes on to tell a story about what is going on inside these religious leaders through this parable he gives of a vineyard. Now, in order to understand this parable, we need to understand that the vineyard was the national symbol of the people of Israel. It'd be, uh, be like me putting up a picture of a bald eagle. You would immediately know I'm talking about the USA. It's our, it's our national symbol. And so, in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 7, for example, it says, the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. Or, or in Psalm 80, verse 8, you brought a vine out of Egypt, you drove out the nations and planted it. The Jewish historian Josephus notes that actually in the very temple in which Jesus was teaching, there was a huge, about 150-foot wood uh, stone sculpture of a vineyard representing the people of God. And so if the vineyard is the people of God, then who's the owner of the vineyard? Well, it, it is God. Right? So we've got, we got the owner who's God, we've got the vineyard who's the people of Israel. Then who are the tenants? Well, that's the religious leaders. Those people who are supposed to be caring for the vineyard, caring for God's people. And the owner leaves, and he's gone, it says, for, for quite some time. But then when it's time to get some of the harvest, it's his harvest, things that he has a right to. He, he sends a servant to go get it, but the tenants beat the servant and don't give him anything. Now at this moment, the owner would have been completely within his rights to show up with soldiers and wipe these tenants out. That's not what he does. This is a merciful owner. And so he gives them another opportunity. He, he sends another servant. But they do the same thing. But such is the love and mercy of this owner that he sends yet still another servant. Maybe third time's the charm. But again, they do the same thing. And yet such is the loving mercy of the owner 
He says, I'm going to send my own beloved son. Maybe they'll listen to him. And yet they escalate and him they even kill. And so you have these servants. Who are the servants? Friends, these, these are the prophets who were constantly going to the people of Israel and telling them to turn back their ways to God. But the Old Testament is full of example after example of these leaders rejecting the prophets that God sent. Elijah has to flee from his life from King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. Isaiah is sawn in half with a wooden saw. Jeremiah is thrown into a pit and then stoned to death. Zechariah is also rejected and stoned. Micah, he gets punched in the face. Servant after servant after servant. Rejection after rejection after rejection. And now the son is here. I remember what Jesus told his disciples going all the way back in chapter 9. Listen to the echoes of this word, these words. He says, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected. By the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. Jesus predicted this moment that's happening right now. And he said what the outcome is going to be. The son was going to be killed by the tenants. Why, why were the tenants doing these wicked things? Well, if someone came and tried to take your land, you were fully within your rights to defend that land. And, and, to, and to even kill people if they were trying to take what was yours. Here's the key difference. The, 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 the tenants were acting like the land was theirs. They're reacting to these situations like they were owners and someone was trying to rob from them. They had forgotten that they were not owners. They were managers who had been trusted to take care of things that wasn't theirs. What's going on here is they, they've forgotten their identity. <laughs> That's what Jesus is showing us here. He's telling us that these religious leaders, they've been entrusted by God to care for his people, but ultimately they've forgotten that they were accountable to God and under his authority, and the rejection of Jesus is a lot more than just rebelling against some teacher. Ultimately, they're forgetting and not living according to their God-given identity. They've forgotten who they were. And not knowing their identity ended up costing them everything. What happens in verse 16? They lose the vineyard. They come under the judgment of God. Listen, friends, our culture wants to tell us that we should be free to create our own identities. You can just be whoever you want. That's actually not always the best advice, is it? Imagine that there's someone who's, I don't know, five foot one and weighs about 100 pounds. And he really feels like, you know, in my identity, in my inner self, I feel like I am an NFL lineman. And he, you know, he has, he has people around him, you know, he goes to enough schools that encourage him, you can be whatever you want to be, and he's, you know, dumb enough to listen to all that. And so he's like, I'm going to be an NFL lineman, and he just works and trains and does that and dedicates his whole life to that kind of identity. How's that going to work out for him? Listen, if you, maybe you don't know anything about sports, this illustration's falling flat. Um, being five foot one and weighing 100 pounds, that's like one leg of the average NFL lineman. You know, like, you show up five foot one and be like, I'm here to, you know, do it. Flexor Cox is going to look down and be like, man, I got pants bigger than you. You know, like, like it's not going to go well. It doesn't matter how much you want it, how much you're free to be you. If you are living in a way that's not in accordance with your nature, it's not going to work out that well. Is a, is, a, is a fish really free 
if it decides to get out of the water and live on land? No. It's lost its freedom if it's not living according to its nature. It's going to lose its life. See, friends, authority, it can have a negative connotation in our culture, but ultimately it's incredibly important to, to establish things like truth and justice, but also it's incredibly freeing. Because when you have an authority that defines who you are, you're going to know how to be able to live according to your true nature. You're going to know how to be able to thrive best in life. But again, we ask the question, well, what is the right authority then? How do we know that? There's a variety of authorities that kind of get put out there, isn't there? I mean, there's, I would say, like the popular opinion authorities, what your peers think of you. You know, that, that, how I dress, I'm identifying with this group. You know, I'm going to be controlled by what my peers and other influences think of me. You know, I'm going to be controlled by learning all these TikTok dances and getting enough likes. That's how I build up who I am. You know, or maybe, you know, we chuckle that as adults, but like, you know, maybe for us it's, it's success, it's money, it's career, it's prestige, right? It's just things that other people value that we want to value because they value it. That becomes our authority, kind of popular opinion. Or maybe it's, it's your culture, it's where you're from that really matters to you, that's your authority. Yeah, but isn't that also very easy to become a bias for prejudices? Maybe it's like, well, no, no, it is myself. It's me. I determine it. Okay, well, what do you do then with your flaws? To be free to be you, what do you do with the parts of you that you don't really like about you? As we talk with people who struggle with addictions, a common thing that they can say is, what if this is just who I am? What if I just am an addict? How does the message of be true to yourself work in that situation? It, tell you what, it doesn't. It doesn't. Do you just follow your feelings where it feels good? Friends, feelings change and flux all the time. How can we possibly live based off things as unstable as our feelings? And so really, when we're asking the question of authority, when we're deciding what voices we're going to listen to and let shape our lives, really what we're asking isn't is, is who can we trust? Who can we trust? My wife Angie asked me to do almost anything i drop whatever it was, and, and i do what she asked. Why? Because I know she loves me. I know she wants what's best for me and our family. She's proven that over our 14 years of a relationship. We have a history together, and based on that history, I've learned to trust her. Friends, we need to understand we have a history with God shown through Jesus Christ. And this is why Jesus is the most trustworthy authority we could possibly have. Let's go to point three. This is our fastest point, but it is by far the most important. Jesus is a lot more trustworthy than we think. Notice in verse 17, he says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is a quotation from the exact same psalm that the crowd had quoted, Psalm 118. And Jesus is saying, I'm grateful that you're quoting that psalm, but have you thought through all of its implications? Because if I'm the king, that means I'm also meant to be your cornerstone. What does it mean for Jesus to be the cornerstone? Well, a few months ago, Angie and I were Washington, D.C. We went to the Bible Museum. It's a great time. And we actually have to see a cornerstone and understand firsthand, visually, how it works. And so, in ancient times, homes were built out of stone and straw in order to kind of keep everything level there would be a cornerstone that would be the first thing that got set, and then the whole house was built and based off reference to that cornerstone. The cornerstone would be the stone that gave direction to the entire building. 
And so when Jesus is saying that he is the cornerstone, he is saying that he is the one who is meant to bring shape and direction to everything about us. Make no mistake, friends, this is a claim of absolute authority over our lives. But look at how Jesus establishes his authority. He says it's the stone that the builders rejected that's become the cornerstone. Jesus has shown his authority by coming and being rejected. Jesus has shown his authority by leaving the glory of heaven and coming into the brokenness of this world and taking on our sins on the cross as he is crucified, bearing the judgment of God in place of us. Friends, Jesus did not come with a show of force and compel us and force us to follow him. No, he came with self-sacrificial love to win our hearts and show us that we can trust him. Friends, we have a history with God in Jesus Christ. There is no one who has ever so proven that his heart is for us, that he is committed to our best interest. There's no one who's ever done that more than Jesus Christ. He gave his very life for us. He was rejected so that he could become our cornerstone. And so when he tells us to submit, when he calls us to obey, when he says that we should live under his authority, let him define who we are. Friends, our obedience to God, our submission to his authority is meant to come from a place of trust in the loving heart of God shown through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Well, let me say it this way. Here's the big idea from this text. We can trust and obey Jesus. Because no one loves us like Jesus. Friends, we can trust and obey Jesus because no one loves us like Jesus. This passage is calling us to give Jesus our lives. To lay down at his feet because he is the one where true life and true freedom and lasting joy. He is the person in which all that is found. So I think this text really asks us a question. Who owns your life? Who owns your life? Are you a tenant who is resisting the authority of God? Or are you a servant who's enjoying the authority of God? Who, who owns your life? I want to be clear, this is not just a question for those who are not yet followers of Jesus. It is a question for you. Friends, this is a question for all of us. When God's word collides with your desires, what gives? What's your rubric for making life decisions? Is it convenience? Is it comfort? Is it what feels right to you? Is it asking the people that you know will affirm what you already want for yourselves? Or is it God speak to me? Let me come before your word. Bring me under your authority. Let me do what your word says and practice wisdom by consulting godly people who will lead me back into your word and challenge my thinking. Friends, who owns your life? What is your authority? As you go into this week, there are going to be all kinds of people who want to be your authority in your life. 
As you go into this week, there are going to be all kinds of desires that you have for yourself that are going to want to be authorities in your lives. When that happens, go into this week armed with this truth. We can trust and obey Jesus because no one loves us like Jesus. He is the right authority. Let's pray.